This is Steve Adubato. Welcome to Lessons in Leadership. I'm here with my colleague, Mary Gamba. How are you doing, Mary? I'm doing great today. How are you? Doing great. We're here at East Main Media Studios. Brian, everything good? Everything is great. Terrific. In just a couple of seconds, we're going to be talking to our good friend, Michelle Sikirka, who is the president and chief executive officer of the New Jersey Business and Industry Association, a leader who also teaches others and promotes leadership with women in particular, in recent seminar that we did down there, a recent conference, but leadership across the board in the business community. Mary, real quick, let folks know where they can find lessons in leadership. Absolutely. They can find us on Facebook, Steve Adubato, PhD, that's A-D-U-B-A-T-O, as well as on Twitter at Steve Adubato. They can go to our website at stand-deliver.com. We have a lot of great resources there, free articles. They can find information on our books, also on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, and you can give us a like if you really enjoy what you're listening to. You also know you can find us on the AM 970 website. You can find us on the Business and Industry Association site, NJBIA, mm-hmm. and Fios On Demand, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just plugging. All we're going to do for a half hour is plug. You never do that, Steve. This is something new. And did you know I have a book called Lessons in Leadership? No way. I happen to have it somewhere on my desk. I'm going to pull it out. Well, you should oh. know you wrote half of it. There um, it is. More importantly, enough about us. Let's go to our good friend, Michelle Sikirka, who is the president and chief executive officer of NJBIA, New Jersey Business and Industry Association. How are you, Michelle? I'm doing great. Such a pleasure to join you once again. Absolutely. Michelle, I was just making reference to a conference that was held. I mean, I was overwhelmed by the number of women in leadership positions who were there that the Business and Industry Association held. I was also honored to have the opportunity to moderate a forum on building your own brand and executive presence. Question. When did you know that you had innate leadership qualities? Wow, what a great question. You know, I'd have to say that it comes with maturity, and what I mean by that is just some years of experience. You know, I tend to say in life, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and I kind of believe that. And so we all walk around with some of those war wounds, but it is those war wounds that give us the experiences that then help us to rise as leaders. And so I don't know that I can pinpoint a specific day or moment that it happened, but I have to say I feel in each iteration of my career, my leadership skills have been built by the different types of experiences that I had the ability to participate in. So, so let me ask you, the kinds of women who, who were there that day, and by the way, there were men there as well, but literally hundreds and hundreds of women from all walks of life. Over 500. Mm-hmm. Okay, are they women in the corporate world, in government, in entrepreneurial situations, creating their own businesses? Are they all different kinds of women in different leadership positions? Absolutely. At all different levels in their careers, which is really important. The diversity of this event is significantly important. It's uh, diversity across industry as well as where you are in the phase of your career. Mm. By the way, Michelle, do you mind if we plug some of our sponsors on Lessons in Leadership? (laughs) By the way, can you relate it all to thanking your sponsors, Michelle Sikirka? Well, I have to say, you know, we enjoy a tremendous (laughs) partnership with you, Steve. And certainly through our award-winning New Jersey Business Magazine, we enjoy the opportunity to share mutual opportunities and benefits that all of our New Jersey leaders can benefit from. That being said, Michelle also knows that we work very hard. The Business and Industry Association works very hard at, at getting and keeping sponsors. So I want to thank our friends at Prager Metis, at New Jersey Resources, at RWJ Barnabas Health, and also at Valley Bank, as well as a range of others. Michelle, let me ask you this. A lot of talk about the C-suite 
women in the C-suite and in the boardrooms. Are we making any significant progress in breaking through and having more women in the C-suite and more women on boards, or are we stagnant? We are certainly not stagnant. We are making slow and steady progress. I do believe that we are moving the needle, maybe not at the pace we'd like to, but I'm someone who believes slow and steady wins the race. Okay. What I'm really curious about, I've been reading one of the leadership books on this desk here. I'm sorry, Andrew and the team here and Brian for being so sloppy, but I have all these leadership books. And one of them that's been on my mind a lot is this book called Off Balance. It's written by Matthew Kelly. It's a New York Times bestseller. And simply, Michelle, what it talks about is the myth of work-life balance, that there is no such thing as work-life balance. It's either you're satisfied or you're not satisfied or getting to being more satisfied in your work and in your personal life. Question for you who's always had a, similarly to me, I've known you for many years, a significant professional career. Your family matters so much to you. How do you, I'm not gonna use the word balance, how do you juggle it all and what does that have to do with leadership? Well, let me say, I have now 27-year-old twins, and so you can imagine, yes, as I was coming up through my career, I struggled with this every day. Let me say that I have read every self-help book on balancing <laughs> family and work. I am not kidding you. You could see my library. And I commend every author, and I've tried every suggested tip, and there's no such thing. But I would always say that family always comes first and happens to work itself out. Follow your gut and your instinct. So what I like to say to folks is that you know on a given point in time where you are in your trajectory, and it could be even just how your week is going, how your month is going, or the bigger part of your career. And while family always comes first, sometimes it's going to be just fine that you have to take a night to go out to a networking event, or you have to attend a meeting, or you have to travel because it's good for your career. Your family's not going to suffer from it. And particularly if your children understand that you are out there trying to do good for the greater community, they're going to appreciate the fact that you are out there being a part of society and helping society move forward. I say to my colleagues all the time, leave your mother, spouse, significant other guilt at the door. You will just <laughs> be fine. But in the sake of the moment, just stop and say to yourself, who needs me today? If today's the day I don't need to be at the uh, softball game or the soccer game because dad's there or my significant other or my parent is there and I really need to go do this networking, take the moment to do it. Your family will not suffer for it. I'm looking at Mary Gamma, my co-host and colleague, our executive producer, with two teenage boys. She's looking, saying, huh. Yeah. <laughs> Go yeah. ahead. No, I live it, too. And, Michelle, great recommendations. I, too, read a lot of self-help books. And I take a nugget from each of them and apply it where it fits. And I've also found, in terms of the balance, as you were just talking about, is I learn to be present in each of the moments. I learn to be present when I'm at work. Not that I don't think about my children or my family, and I will be there if they happen to call and need me. But it's more about being present in each of those opportunities. And do you feel like that's something that's really helped you along the way in terms of being present, whether at work or at home, to really just be the best you that you could be? Now, Michelle, let me complicate that before you answer it. I'm holding up my iPhone. How has technology made that oh, more goodness. difficult to be present? Go ahead. Oh, there's so much noise in our lives today because of technology. I mean, I really feel for the next generation because their world is so small. You know, our world wasn't as complicated when we had less technology. So while technology is an enabler, it creates a lot of noise, and it's incumbent upon us to learn when to cut through the noise. Mary, to your point about being present, 100%. You know, when you put your all into a moment, if you take the time to show up somewhere, 
you know, my gosh, don't just show up, literally be there, right? I mean, give your all to that time. And that's where your passion is, whether it's time with your children, and then you got to shut out the noise of your work for whatever that period of time is. So they really feel that you were there for them. And then in your career, when you show up to that event or that meeting or, or whatever it is, they need your undivided attention. And sometimes you just got to put that phone on the side. You've been listening to Michelle Sekirka, the president and CEO of the New Jersey Business and Industry Association. By the way, Michelle, let's plug the website. Let's everyone know where they can go to the website to find out more. Where do they go? www.njbia.org. Great stuff. And by the way, BIA sends out these really powerful, effective e-blasts during the day about important news in the world of business and public policy and, and leadership, et cetera. Last question before I let you go, Michelle. One of the things about you, and Michelle has joined us on our public television programming for years and continues to do that to talk about a whole range of business economic issues, what matters to the business community in New Jersey. But Michelle, the one thing about you that I've always noticed is that you have a very high level of what I like to call executive presence. Where did you learn it? Well, thank you. This has to do with looking at people who you respect and taking away some observations of why you respect them and why others respect them, and then trying to empower yourself with those types of skills. And so over my lifetime, I have to tell you that I have not had formal mentors in my life, but I've had tons and tons of informal mentors. And for me, those are people who I looked at and said, wow, they're really doing something spectacular. They have good presence. What can I learn from them? Great stuff. Uh, I want to thank Michelle Sekirker for joining us. After this break, Mary and I will break this down. Again, I want to thank our friends at Prager Metis and, and RWJ Barnabas Health and Valley Bank, as well as the folks at New Jersey Resources and so many others. Michelle, thank you for joining us, breaking down some of these leadership questions, but most importantly, offering some extremely valuable lessons in leadership. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Good stuff. We'll be right back right after this. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. Lessons in Leadership with me, Steve Adubato, and my colleague, Mary Gamba, is brought to you by Prager Metis, Gibbons PC, Valley, and New Jersey Resources. Welcome back to Lessons in Leadership. I'm Steve Adubato. This is Mary Gamba with me, listening on AM 970, as well as on Apple Apple Podcasts. And Google. And Google and Spotify. And Spotify. I figured that out. Absolutely. And AM970 mm -hmm. on their website and ROI. And JBIA.org. And JBIA. Stand-deliver.com. And files on, on demand. demand. Yes. I'm just saying. Very exciting. So how about this? We listened to Michelle Sekirka talk all about, what mm -hmm. are some of the things we talked she about? She was talking about work-life balance, being present in the moment, uh, which is so important if you're at home, being present in your mind and your space at home. And when you're at work, making sure that you're present in what you're doing. And then she went into the importance of reading and learning from others and just really being a lifelong learner, which is something that you and I talk about all the time because you've never arrived. You're just constantly learning. Yeah. So in mm -hmm. that spirit, all the books that we have here, Michelle, again, she talked about the fact that she reads a lot. You and I talk about, mm -hmm. we're always coming across a new book. Andrew, what was the book that you told me about during the lunch break today? Well, the author's name is Brene Brown. And what was the book? The book is entitled Dare to Lead. Dare to Lead. Ooh. In fact, I actually thought I emailed you. I think, I, yes, I was I searched say. it and I found it and then I emailed it oh, to you. Oh, that's why this That came from Andrew. Got now, it. Why, uh, the only reason I mentioned that is because Andrew happened to say, hey, do you know this person and this author? And I was going to lie and say I do because I'm supposed to know this stuff. 
but I didn't. No, there are countless. You couldn't know them all. So well, I know and a trait everything. of a good leader is being honest. <laughs> so it's better to be honest and say that you didn't know. You don't need to know everything. Don't you know I'm a leadership expert? You need to surround people that are smarter than you. The way to compliment yourself. That's great. So why is it that my family laughs at me when I talk about leadership at dinner? I don't know why. I actually didn't know. Did, did, did they laugh at you when yeah. you talk? I didn't know that they did, actually. Yeah, they so do. I can't answer. You're going to have to ask. Did you ever ask them why they laugh? Uh, no, I don't want to know. Oh. But but it's just it's always interesting to me because there are a couple of things I want to talk about as it relates to things that Michelle said. But one of the biggest is this whole idea of lifelong learning. Again, go on to our website at stand-deliver.com. I believe you're going to see a leadership library. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I'm actually going to move it right up to the homepage. So by the Please time do. this airs, we'll get it right on the homepage. Good. But one of the books, and again, I'm sorry if you've heard this a hundred times in the past, but Mary and I met 20-ish years mm -hmm. ago. Yeah. 20 years in June. Let's celebrate. I think we should. And we have the North Ward Center also. Yeah. Their anniversary. It's a big year for anniversary. So It's the Mary and Steve anniversary. I 20 know. years together. Yeah. It's a long time. And we met actually in a hospital. Yes. I was there and you were working there. Yes. And again, I believe we started talking about Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Yeah. You actually had the book out on the table. And I said, I love that book. It's one of my favorites. First of all, because it's short. I love things that could be easily digestible. Yeah. You could just turn to a specific chapter based on a particular issue or challenge that you're having. And if you're just looking for some insight. So why don't we do this? Here's, the reason that we're mentioning this is because even though this book came out in 1998-ish. Oh, yeah. No, 97. Richard Carlson mm -hmm. unfortunately died before he even turned 50. I know. But what's so interesting about this, he had two daughters and wonderful wife who continued his work in terms of writing and teaching about life and leadership. That being said, let's go through some of these chapters in the mm -hmm. spirit of lifelong learning. Sure. Because I go back and I still read Carlson. I was reading the other day, do you remember the, the danger of spiral thinking? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because I was spiraling mm -hmm. and I noticed, and by the way, this is a lot of this is about leadership, but it could be also be about life as well. I was thinking, what about if this happened? And what about if that happened and this happened? Mm -hmm. It's a snowball And if effect. that happened, then where do I go from there? And Brian's shaking his head because? Oh, that's a great lesson. I've been in that position where I've worried about things that are way down the road. And one of my great mentors told me, you got to worry about what's right in front of you. Don't spiral into it. Mm -hmm. And I had to go back and read that chapter oh, yeah. because by the end of my spiral thinking, everything was gone. Oh, totally. The company had gone bankrupt. We had no more money. I had to foreclose on our, yeah. I'm not even. Oh, I know. And I'm I know. thinking, what am I doing? How yeah. did I get here? Go exactly. ahead. Exactly. And a small degree of spiral thinking is healthy. You want to make sure that you don't get so into the now that you're not seeing the forest from the trees and seeing what could be down the line. You don't want to be blindsided. But what you do need to do is make sure that you're not going into a negative spiral thinking pattern mm. where then one negative leads to another and it leads to another. And then it will become a self-fulfilled prophecy. And yeah, that's excuse me good. for interrupting. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Steve and I were just talking about yeah. one of the chapters. What's chapter 29? Well, chapter I was 29 looking... is become a better listener. What yes. were you thinking? I was looking at chapter seven, don't interrupt others or finish their sentences. <laughs> so sorry, chapter seven, exactly. <laughs> So I had said to Steve that if you say to someone that, oh, you know, sorry for interrupting, you wouldn't have to say it if you weren't interrupting. I'm not buying it. Okay. I'm going to deal with this with you mm -hmm. because this is an important leadership issue. It's an important communication and life issue. Sure. I'm saying, mm -hmm. Brian, am I a decent interviewer? Oh, yeah. Phenomenal, actually. One of the best. One of my favorites. <laughs> one of my favorites. One of the best. <laughs> one of my favorites, yeah. It's so interesting. You, you say you shouldn't interrupt. And my problem with that argument is this. I engage in what I like to call 
strategic interrupting. Translation, if someone has said something to mm -hmm. you that you want to follow up on, I'll say, I'm sorry for interrupting, Mary. Can you give me an example of what you're saying so I can better understand it? Now, that is not the same. I remember years ago, I was in college and I used to ski. I know you find that hard to believe. I never knew that you skied. See, I that's stopped. why I love this show. I keep finding out all this new stuff. At 25, I stopped skiing because... You hit a tree? I, I broke know. my leg at Shawnee. No way. Yeah, and I was in cast all the way up. And I thank my friend Linda who was with me on that trip. And I had a, um, a stick shift and she didn't know how to drive it. And I had to drive it with my other good foot from the passenger seat. And <laughs> then, so the reason I'm mentioning all this is because I used to be into skiing. And I remember telling somebody, I had just come back from Colorado and Utah skiing. And I was talking about how great the skiing was. Oh, it was really great. And the snow, and I started talking about it, and someone said, you think that skiing is great? Let me tell you, I was in the Alps. That's one upsmanship. So that's a little bit different than interrupting. But you I'm sorry, you finished because I don't want to interrupt you. Yeah. <laughs> that is different. Mary, both of those examples are interruptions. Right. I'm saying strategic interrupting mm -hmm. is wanting to know more, is looking to clarify is questioning something you just said so that I can connect with you. If you let someone keep talking, you never yeah. interrupt them and you're on a clock, how would you, Brian, come on, help mm -hmm. me here. Well, what occurs to me is when there's a layer of vision that's added there, you, I'm not saying you, anyone One. may interrupt to carry the vision forward. They may say, look, come with me, this is where I'm going. Hold on, stop there, let me add to this, and this is where we're going. So, I mean, I, I see that happen in meetings with us. Yeah. Uh, you know, that happens, but it's a visionary thing. It's not just, let me tell you about the Alps. Of course. Right. It moves things forward. It moves no, things forward. But why are forward. you then saying, okay, let's get this out of the way, because there are other chapters I want to talk sure, about. In Richard Carlson's great book, we Don't Sweat so the Small Stuff. All I'm saying is, are you okay? And when I say, excuse me mm -hmm. for interrupting, it is my way of acknowledging and I know I'm doing it, but I'm doing it for a good reason. You're not buying it. No, I, I agree in certain cases. That's all. And I wasn't even accusing you of being the one that was interrupting. I was just referring to one of the chapters. No, it's not at all. You said I interrupted. No, I didn't. You think we've been working together too many years? <laughs> <laughs> when you had the idea to go through this book, I said, this is going to be fun. All right, pick go one, ahead. go. All right. Understand separate realities. It could not be more perfect than right now. No, Go ahead. I love that. And we've talked about it on the show. So I actually may just move on to another one because we have talked about that Go before. Ahead. Separate realities. It's almost agreeing to disagree and understanding that somebody may see something from a different perspective. And the best example I can use is this. And we will not belabor this whole separate reality thing. Again, we've joked on other editions of Lessons in Leadership that one of our guests talked about Little House on the Prairie. Yes. And you said you liked it. Mm -hmm. And you grew up in a house, we talked about this a million times, yeah. a nice house where people said nice things yep. to each other, like Little House on the Prairie. Sure. My reality was very different. Therefore, the way we see the world is somewhat predicated on our realities. Right, but the way that I see your world is based on not only my own perception, and that's what understanding someone else's separate realities, in other words, I can't judge you because of the way that you act, just because of the way that you were brought up. So I need to be empathetic to that and understand where that communicator mm. is coming from. I do agree with that. But there, mm -hmm. are, I always wonder if there is, as a leader, as a person in a leadership position, are there any objective realities that are not debatable? Ooh, that's They're a good not question. separate. It's like, this is the standard. This is what's expected. And don't be telling me you have a separate reality. That's a great question. I think in that situation, when you're setting the bar and standards, there are no separate realities. I think that comes more into 
If you're really just talking about maybe someone's delivery, someone's tone. Yes. That's where but that comes standards. in. not standards. I love when Brian has that face where he's like, oh, <laughs> hmm. I'm not sure if he thinks this is an absurd conversation or he's got something he wants to contribute. Well, I'm recalling guests that we've had recently, actually, we talked about expectations and how that helps offset the discussion of two different realities. Got it. Yeah. How about this one? You ready? I'm ready. Praise and blame are all the same. Do you even remember that chapter? Well, to say that I remember the exact points of that chapter, no. You remember but the theme? Of course, what yeah. Um, well, that pretty much, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> you want to know what? Do you? Neither do I. Okay, good. <laughs> I actually have one. Go. And I love this one. Practice random acts of kindness. Random? I have started doing this, I would say, about for the past 10 years. So, for instance, the other day, I was at Panda Express, a nice little plug for Panda Express. And so we're moving down the line, and then the guy in front of me, digging around, and he pulls out a credit card. His credit card was being declined. Declined, declined, declined. And it's, gave you know, a credit card? <laughs> well, you know, pretty much oh. he's scrambling. You know, you could tell, like, he's sweating bullets. And it wasn't an act. It wasn't like, oh, maybe if I do this long enough, the lady behind line is going to pay for me. Right. And at that point, he was about, now he already like picked all the stuff. It's like, you know, down the line, it's his food at this point. So it's either, you know, they're just going to throw it away or whatever. So I paid for his meal. And again, I didn't go home and tell anybody. Nobody knows. This is the first time I'm talking about it. But it made me feel good. It made me then maybe he'll do something and maybe it made his day. And I like that chapter. Pay it forward. Pay it forward. And I... I do it in small ways. Even if I don't like somebody's hair, I love your hair. Oh, you right? lie. I do. Leadership and, and lying. Let's it, talk. It's great. No, but it really does. You never know what someone else is going through, and you never know. It, maybe they're having a bad day, and it just helps to lift it up. You know so why I like that you're one. full of it? Why? Because in another edition of Lessons in Leadership, you said that you become less empathetic and less patient with all that, and you're still like one of the nicest people I've ever met. There is a difference between empathy. Go ahead. Okay. I didn't like go and like support that guy for the rest of his life and just paying it forward. I think there is a difference. I don't agree in feeling sorry for people. And I think that's where empathy comes in. I didn't feel sorry for him. I just wanted to do the right thing and pay for his meal. Does that make sense? Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I just want so, to understand that. No, it's fine. <laughs> okay. What do you got? Give me one more. Uh, just one All right. More. One more. Another good one. Well, while we're pausing, why don't you look, and I'm going to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Please thank our sponsors as we stall, but also that is important to do that. Go ahead. No, no, it's really great. So we would love to thank New Jersey Resources and Prager Metis. For everyone that is listening to us on AM 970 Radio, if you like what you hear, you can also subscribe to the Apple Podcast and Google Play of Lessons in Leadership and the Leadership Hour. And you could follow us on Facebook at Steve Adubato, PhD. That's A-D-U-B-A-T-O. And that's Good stuff. It. I got one I don't like. You got one you don't like. Get By the out. way, this reason there's a hundred and something chapters or the chapters are two pages long. Chapter 69. Be happy where you are. Mm-hmm. Sorry, can't do it. And you don't like that one? Well, maybe your interpretation of it and it's, mine are not the same. Maybe right, right, right. I see where realities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you mine. I am not good with saying this is where we are. Now, I try not to take uh, my wife and our kids and my health and the fact that we work with great people for granted. However, would there be a lessons in leadership video podcast if we were happy with where we were? 
No. Would there be Think not. Tank, the podcast? No. Would we be doing a million other things that we're doing? That's to me what it is. Constant innovation. No, Where's and it? I see it that way. I think when I, and again, the exact details of the chapter and how he had intended it, I see it as be grateful, be thankful where you are in more in a philosophical sense rather than applying it to the work that you were just talking about. So yeah, I agree with you completely. I don't think you could ever be content, especially at work and even in life too. You want to always be working to become a better person and to become a better leader. So let's do this. Mm -hmm. This is Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, one of the many books in our leadership library by Richard Carlson. I, I just do want to shift gears, okay? Go ahead. We've talked about this before mm -hmm. and a lot of people mention Daniel Goleman, but don't really understand it. They like to use the term emotional intelligence. I don't know if you remember we ever did this, but this is one of the pages in our leadership manual, the connection between leadership and emotional intelligence. I'm going to run some things past you. Mm -hmm. So what Goleman argues, Dr. Daniel Goleman argues, that emotional intelligence is largely about self-awareness, but he also says emotional intelligence is about managing your moods. You ready? Keeping calm, no matter how you feel inside, is critically important to the messages you're communicating to those around you. While passion is essential to persuading people, passion is not the same as toxic emotions. Go. Wow. You and I have talked about that for years, that there is a difference between being passionate and really feeling an intense visceral reaction to something that maybe went wrong and how you communicate that. Because if you communicate it in such a way that the other person perceives it as being aggressive or not the right tone, they're going to shut down and then you're not going to go anywhere. Toxic emotions. Mm -hmm. Is that the right word? I think it is. You could call it anything. You could call it anger, rage, but toxic emotions. Toxic are, is poisonous. It is. And it could become like a cancer in the organization. If from the top, there's a sense that the leadership is toxic, it's going to go down and poison the rest of the organization. Okay. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. I, I, no, I don't I want to interrupt you since we were talking about listening before. Thank you very and much. And finishing <laughs> other people's sentences. In many of the guests that we've had on, and I think Michelle mentioned it too when we were talking. Sikirka, Michelle Sikirka, Michelle Sikirka, yep. The CEO of New Jersey Business and Industry Association. Yes, and you need to lead by example. And it's sometimes just not in what you say and do, but it's just overall your actions on a daily basis. And if you are leading in the example that you're setting is one of a toxic emotion, then the people that work for you are going to believe that that's the standard and that's what's expected of them. Okay, so go back to another question about emotional intelligence, which I find fascinating. And, I, and the only reason I keep talking about this is because I know you understand it, and it's not about this particular instance or this person. But do you think the people who are, go back to self-awareness, mm -hmm. right? Someone who's argumentative, defensive, refusing to accept the feedback that is required to be the coach and leader you need to be, do you think he or she knows it a b even cares to know i would say yes and no i think that yes the person is aware and that's just they believe that they're right and one of the chapters as i was thumbing through is you yeah. know you don't always have to be right and that's okay and do they want to know like i don't think they do in those situations one thing that we haven't actually talked about and it's interesting to flip it We've also given feedback to certain people on our team over the years. As you said, we've been working together for 19 years and they sit there and they nod and they accept <laughs> it. And yeah, like, okay, I'm going to work on that. And three months later, they're still doing the same. Weren't we just know, talking about this? Yeah, A absolutely. really pleasant, and it could be our team or any team. Mm -hmm. So the person's not arguing. Mm -hmm. The person's not pushing back. Yeah. The person is 
I don't even know what acknowledging means, but the person's not saying, and this is what I'm going to sure. do about it. So how the heck do you so, know that message sent is equals message yeah, it's received? it's one extreme or the other. And I think that's why we're able to do what we do on a daily basis. And we've been able to do it for so many years because there is no one right way. There's no cookie cutter. All right. I just handled this situation with employee A, and now I'm going to go work with Bob and it's going to work the same way. You need to adapt your leadership style to your people. And that's challenging. It's very challenging. Uh, I'm going to complicate things for you. Mm -hmm. You just said Bob. Mm -hmm. We don't have a Bob on the team. The reason I'm saying it is this. Because we all have all women on the that's team and saying. it'd be a weird all... name for a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Very funny. Question. Do you think, I feel like I've asked you every question before, but I don't believe I have. Do you believe that it's harder for a team of all one gender? There's me, and then there's all these very talented women on the team, and then there's Brian's team at East Main Media, which is a diverse team, it fair is. to say? It is. But our team, take me out of the equation, it's all women. Now, you are the chief operating officer of this company, whether you have that title and definitely don't have the pay. That being said, harder to be with all, I'm not going to say all women or all men, but it is all women. Is it harder to lead in that situation? That's interesting. I believe firmly, I think it is easier for a woman to lead other women because we can relate to one another better. We use similar, for the most part, whether it's conversational styles, whether it's wording. I feel like there's a little bit more of that ability to relate to one another. I'm sorry, I'm about to interrupt. Should I send a signal first? <laughs> Mary. Oh, is this, this is going to be the new you. you know you said to me. Yes. You said. Mm -hmm. And maybe I shouldn't say this on the oh, air. Oh, no, you could say it. Sometimes you said you think you think like, quote, a man. Oh, no, I do. And that's the next thing out of my mouth was just going to be that way. Exactly. So pretty much from my experience. So, yes, I work with a team of all women. I lead a team of all women. But growing up, and I've said this to you, that literally I've been always closer friends with guys. And it's just always been easier because I don't deal well with drama. And a lot of times, and again, I'll probably get hate email or hate mail, but there's usually sometimes more drama associated with women than men. Men are, you know, just historically, they want to get things done, you know, be done and move on. And then it's just blank. They don't think about it again. Women sometimes tend to think about things a little bit more. They tend to ruminate over it. They tend to, my feelings are hurt. And I don't have a lot of patience for that. But when it comes to leading another group of women, because I am a woman, sometimes that is a little bit easier. That's, That's what so I was Interesting. Say. But ironically, I am the only woman in my household because I have a husband and two boys. And up until just recently, our dog was also a boy. And so I do find that even though it's challenging, it's also a great opportunity to learn how to lead in that way as well. Final question. As more and more women gain more and more traction in the world of leadership, whether they be in the C-suite, mm -hmm. on boards, et cetera, do you think organizational culture, with more and more women in leadership positions, do you believe it'll have a significant impact in organizational culture? I don't believe it's going to. I, I think that just the trend, and even though there are more women in those roles, I don't see a huge shift happening anytime, not in our lifetime. You where, don't think so? No, no, I don't. Because most of the women that are in those roles are very powerful. They're not the stereotypical woman that's super, you know, soft, warm, fuzzy, that when you think of a woman leader, they are really taking on a lot of those more typically male attributes as a leader. I believe that. Oh, I do. That and, that, and that's okay. saying that. 
That's Whoa. okay. And I don't think there's a problem with that. I you think, don't? No, I don't. Are we I, too PC there in that way? I think we're too PC across the board, and that could be a whole other episode. I yep. think that everybody just needs to lighten up. I really do. By the way, one of the chapters in Carlson's book, mm -hmm. Lighten Up. Yeah, I know. It really it, is. It's, it was too far one way for decades, centuries, and now we're going a whole different way. we got to find a, a happy medium. That's Mary Gamma. This is Steve Adubato. This has been the Leadership it's part of the Leadership Hour, but it's in Lessons mm -hmm. in Leadership. One more time, thank our sponsors. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to thank New Jersey Resources, Prager Metis, also RWJ Barnabas Health, MD Advantage, Valley, Gibbons, Hackensack, Meridian Health, and St. Joseph's. Joseph's Health. Yep, absolutely. And thank the great people over at AM970 and Jerry Crowley. They're the best. And thank the great people at East, East Main, Main Media. Media. Brian, Brian, you want to thank your team? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it starts with who is uh, on the shoot today. We get JP over on audio and Andrew running cameras. We had the help of Lisa Potts also on camera. And of course, the back office, my number two, Kayla Steinmetz. And of course, our longtime editor, Dave Amarada down in Florida. Mm -hmm, much and Steve Sutton, who runs the archive and captioning. And the team just keeps growing from there. It takes a village. It, it does. does. <laughs> it really does. Well said. Steve Adubato, Mary Gamba. This is Brian and the team here at East Main Media. This has been Lessons in Leadership. We'll catch you next time. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. Lessons in Leadership with me, Steve Adubato, and my colleague, Mary Gamba, is brought to you by Prager Metis, Gibbons PC, Valley, and New Jersey Resources. Hi, I'm Joel Bloom, president of New Jersey Institute of Technology. At NGIT, we believe that not only our students, but all citizens need to be informed about the issues facing higher education. As New Jersey Science and Technology University, NGIT is proud to support the important programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation and their partners in public television. Funding for this edition of State of Affairs with Steve Adubato has been provided by Holy Name Medical Center. This place is different. NJIT, New Jersey Institute of Technology. The law firm of Gibbons PC. New Jersey Resources. Fedway Associates. MD Advantage Insurance Company of New Jersey. And by The Fidelco Group. Promotional support provided by AM970 The Answer and by Commerce and Industry Association of New Jersey. Welcome to State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We are at NJTV Studios in Newark, and please introduce Craig Carpenito, who is the U.S. Attorney for the District of New Jersey. Good to see you. How you doing, Steve? Doing great. For those who don't know what that job is, describe it. Okay, so I'm the chief law enforcement uh, officer for the federal government in the state of New Jersey. I'm responsible for all criminal prosecutions in the state of New Jersey brought by the federal government, as well as any case where the United States government is a party in a civil litigation. Let me try this. There's a whole range of issues you're in your office to deal with. And you're not the attorney general's office. You are the chief federal law enforcement officer here. Top issues. Violent crime, quality of life. Absolutely. Make the connection. Yeah. So look, coming into the job, my view was, what, you know, how can I make the greatest impact? The greatest impact, right, the purpose of the job is to make life better for the citizens of New Jersey, the law-abiding citizens. So what I saw was that in the prior administration, I thought the federal government had taken a backseat to the state government with regards to violent crime, um, drug, the drug problem in the, in the state, 
And what it did was it took out of law enforcement's toolbox a very valuable tool, right? I mean, the, the federal government has tools it uses to prosecute these cases that the state just Such doesn't as. have. Well, we have the ability, number one, usually to keep people in. Um, when someone goes before a judge after an arrest in the federal government, given bail reform at the state level, we have a lot more success keeping them in, um, you know, if they're a violent criminal, if they're somebody that has a, a, a long historical past, if they're someone who we think is a risk of flight, putting them in gives us more tools to help get cooperators mm. and to work cases and get deeper within organizations. And that's something I was hearing from the state and local law enforcement officers that, that really had dissipated with bail reform. But deal with this gang violence issue and its impact on quality of life. We've, we've talked to the public safety director in the city of New York, Anthony Ambrose, many times about this, and you work closely with uh, Anthony and his team. Talk about the connection between quality of life and gang violence. Yeah. So one of the first people I met when I found out I was going to be the U.S. attorney was Anthony Ambrose. You know, from my perspective, Anthony is a national treasure, somebody who's been in this, this city for 32 years. The thing he brought to me was the way that law enforcement overall, the state AG's office, the local county prosecutors, the United States Attorney's office was dealing with gang violence was reactive enforcement. What he talked to me about was what getting involved in proactive investigation. So reactive enforcement is there's a shooting, go to the scene, investigate the shooting, try to arrest the perpetrator on that particular shooting, but not really going down into the layers of the gang, not really learning about the gang, not really using the intelligence that we have in the law enforcement community to try and proactively get into the organizations to stop the violence before it occurs. Okay, so now that that's happened, tangible impact? Huge Results? impact. Yeah. The, 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 the gang cases that we're working on are up 56 percent in the United States Attorney's Office. I mean, the number of I've cases. The number of cases we're prosecuting. We've collected almost 500 guns through trigger lock prosecutions and what? other gang-related prosecutions. Trigger lock is a law on the federal level where if you have been um, prosecuted and convicted of a prior felony, you can't carry a gun going forward. We can use that statute when we find a prior felon with a gun to make an arrest for that. We can use it to incarcerate them, but more importantly, we get the gun off the street. Mm. And since I've been in office, we've taken out 486 guns. And Steve, the impact of this to me is, cannot be overstated. We're not talking about a gun buyback program where people who have guns they don't want anymore sitting around at home, bringing them in and selling them back to the state or federal government. Guns that weren't going to be used in street crimes. These are guns taken off of criminals. These are guns taken off the street. Almost 500 less guns, what does that result in? A lot less shootings. Shootings are down about 30% in Newark. Shootings 30%? are down about... 30%? And 30% in Jersey City, where we also have a violent crime initiative. Mm -hmm. The result is, what Anthony tells me is going to be an announcement later this year, that is the lowest number of homicides in Newark's history. Now, that's coming off mm -hmm. of a 50-year low last year. We're going to be about 14% down on those homicides again this year. Uh, we are talking to Craig Carpenito, U.S. Attorney uh, in the District of New Jersey. <clears throat> the opioid crisis. How is that in any way the purview of the U.S. Attorney's Office? So the opioid crisis hits on a number of levels, and we are the best suited to prosecute it at every level. You have the corporate crisis going on with the opioid crisis. You have the producers and the creators and the disseminators of those drugs, right? You have corporations that are pumping them out onto the streets at levels where 
quite frankly, we think the evidence shows some of these manufacturers should have known that they were being misused and misdirected. We have the doctors, the physicians. We Who have are the involved bad, in this? They're bad prescribers. I mean, we've seen a couple of cases we brought earlier this year. We had a takedown in September where we arrested a number of doctors that were basically pill mills. One doctor referred to himself as the El Chapo of opioids. These are guys that are These are licensed physicians? Well, they won't be for long. But these are licensed physicians using their license to basically sell prescriptions to profit off of the opioid crisis. And then we have the street, the street opioid distribution. We have the folks that are out there running pill mills, pressing fentanyl, representing it to be something that's not, mm. and resulting in overdose deaths. Wow. Ongoing crisis. Have to be, has to be dealt with on several levels, right? Yeah, it has to be. Look, you have to hit it at all three levels. Again, similar to the violent crime um, initiative that we have going on, we're not just going to reactively prosecute cases. We're trying to get into intelligence-driven prosecutions by trying to attack the crisis at all three levels. Another area I want to get into. We mentioned Anthony Ambrose, the police director, excuse me, the head of public safety in the city of New York. He participated in a comprehensive, multi-part series we did a couple of years ago on police and the minority community. The issue of excessive force on the part of law enforcement professionals. A, how serious a problem? B, what is the U.S. Attorney's Office doing about it? So I think it's a very serious problem. I mean, when you think about what law enforcement is there for, law enforcement is supposed to make people feel safer in their community. They're supposed to give the people the confidence to go out of their homes and feel safe when, when they walk outside. When a, a law enforcement officer takes that authority and becomes part of the problem, it's something to me that is one of the most dramatic and most impactful crimes on the community that can be committed. Um, I think our office is uniquely situated to deal with these issues because we both work with law enforcement and we're responsible for policing public safety. So, you know, we have to step in at times and we have to deal with these issues. Um, you saw recent cases we brought were the Romantino case down in Camden. Yes. Where Officer Romantino, in our view, used excessive force when making uh, an arrest of an individual, punching him 12 times in the back of the head. We had video of it. We brought it to a jury. The jury ultimately acquitted him. Acquitted uh, him. Acquitted when him. When that happens, U.S. Attorney Carpenito, your, your office, your reaction is? It's a very difficult thing to deal with, but there are certain cases that you have to bring regardless of the outcome. And these are cases we're not going to stop What, to send a message? We have to do it to show the community that we're here and we're not going to turn a blind eye. And also, what about combat. showing those in the law enforcement community who would act in such horrific ways? You need to know that you're going to be held responsible for your conduct. Another case is the Nocera case. You know, the the Nucera case? case down in, that was also brought down in Camden, where we charged for the first time in a decade a law enforcement officer with a hate crime because of his aggression towards a, towards a minority um, youth who was arrested at a hotel. The allegation is that Frank Nucera, a longtime chief of Bordentown Police Department, um, smashed the head of this individual into a door jam, giving him a concussion. It, it, the, the, the impact on his face was visible from the photographs afterwards. The jury hung on those counts, on the hate crime counts. We're going to try them again. Whether win or lose, these are too important of cases for us to bring. We have to do it. You've been listening to U.S. Attorney Craig Carpenito, uh, the entire state of New Jersey. He's the chief federal law enforcement officer in the state of New Jersey. Um, we thank you for joining us. Thanks, Steve. Well said. Make sure you come back in a few months and give us an update. Sounds good. Stay right there. I'm Steve Adubato. We'll be right back. To watch more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. We are pleased to be joined by Assemblywoman Holly Shapizzi. Um, she's the assistant GOP leader in the Assembly. Uh, Holly, great to have you. 
Thank you for having me. Last time we talked about the big picture, GOP politics nationally, statewide. But uh, our colleague and friend Mike Kelly wrote a column about you. Got a lot of feedback. Do you hear a lot about it? Uh, all over. Yeah. So you, you were very candid with Mike. You talked to him about the fact that there are some folks who have said some pretty rotten, nasty, personal things about you, and you're not the only one. This is about you. About your appearance, yes. weight, just, just really stuff that had nothing to do with politics and nothing to do with why you got into this. Right. Why did you do that? Honestly, I, I put up a post on Facebook that talked about I had hit a goal that day of weight loss um, since February. And I put up that although I was really proud of myself for having lost 45 pounds, for me, the biggest struggle and the thing I was most proud of was losing um, other people's opinions of me and letting that impact on me. And in politics, in life, with social media, it's so very difficult because you're under a microscope at every moment of every day. And I had gained a significant amount of weight after having had my brain aneurysm. Right. I was very self-conscious about it. I had kind of given up on myself. Well, Holly just happens to mention a brain aneurysm. <laughs> Check out the interview we did with Holly about that powerful. God, I'm sorry. And I, I just kind of accepted that I had gained this weight and, you know, I was happy to be alive. And in February, I had gone on a TV interview for another station and... A lesser one than public broadcast. A lesser And one of the responses from one of the political activists in the state was to call me a pig and to kind of mock my appearance and put up a picture of me in which it's, you know, it made a vomit face and all this other stuff. And I was on a plane with a couple of friends and we were going away <clears> for the weekend and I was so devastated. And it was something that I said, you know what, I've got to take control of my own life, not allow this stuff to impact on me. And I very quietly went on Weight Watchers, started doing stuff for myself and psychologically just came to a point where I can't say my exact slogan because it would get bleeped out, but it's zero, you know what's left to give yes. about what people think about you. And in politics, it's a really tough place to get to because people take swipes at your hair, your makeup, your perceived intelligence or lack thereof. Uh, they say the most horrific things imaginable. Which is not why you got into public life in the first place. No, not at all. Not at all. And up until, candidly, a couple of years ago, it wasn't like that. But why do you think it's different? I think it's a blend. I mean, it, it, I saw it personally uh, for the first time when I sat on the Bridgegate Committee. That's and right. I would go on different shows to talk about it. And people wouldn't discuss, you know, the policy or whether or not they agreed or disagreed with me on what I was saying. It was, you know, really awful comments about whether or not I sleep with the governor, awful comments about my hair that day, um, weight loss, weight gain. And people who kind of champion themselves as being, you know, all for women we're the most god-awful people to women. Women to women? <laughs> women to women. Women saying things not on public policy, not on substantive issues, which is all we are about here. Right. But about you personally. You actually said this is a toxic political cesspool. Yes. Yeah, not too strong? Not too strong at all. And it's, uh, you know, I speak with my colleagues on the other side of the aisle all the time about Otherwise it. Otherwise known as Democrats. <laughs> my, dem <laughs> my Democrat friends. Um, and, you know, we all take it uh, in various degrees. Um, I'm one Wouldn't of the most... Women worse for women? 
I, I think so. Um, men don't have their appearance commented on as much as women do. Uh, they don't have their clothing commented on as yeah. much as women do. But I've also found that uh, Facebook and Twitter has Social really... Media. Yeah, it's enabled people to say things to one another that they would never say in person. Yeah, but, but Holly, i got to tell you, the other thing about you is that you've never held back. And I remember... There's a quote that we've used from you in one of our shows, I and mean, you said sometimes it becomes difficult being part of a certain of your party at certain times. Right. To what degree does President Trump focusing on the physical appearance of women, starting in the presidential campaign with Carly Fiorina saying that face, right. look at that face, to Rosie O'Donnell, right. to 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 um, formerly uh, at, at Fox and, and NBC, Megyn Kelly, right. about her yes. menstrual cycle, which he'll swear that wasn't what it was about. To a reporter from the New York Times who is handicapped, <clears throat> physically disabled, and the president mocking him. The point I'm making is this. Right. To what degree is the president, he's not alone, right. but to what degree has he contributed to the toxic environment that you described? It, it doesn't help. But the toxicity was there even before him. So when I was on the Bridgegate Committee, Trump wasn't even a blink or a factor. He's just in a part of it. He's a part of it. It's part of, I think he's capitalized on that to an extent, where, you know, I'm somebody where I like to show a different way. And I'm a firm proponent and believer in, if I don't like people doing this to me, I shouldn't be doing it Someone to Someone says, get me in the gutter with them. Get in the gutter and fight with them dirty, and that's the way you play politics today. If you don't want to play that way, then get out of politics, you say. Both of my last election cycles, I had a tremendous amount of money poured against me. And it was everything from I hate every population group to I hate women to I hate this group. It, it was all false. It's not who I am at all. I had personal things in both of the past elections that I could have used against my opponents. Why didn't you? It's not me. I refuse to do it. But how about if you lost in the process? I would have been able to wake up, looked at myself in the mirror, and been proud of myself you for and having... Yeah. I'm sorry for interrupting. Does that make you in the minority, and I'm in the minority party? The person who will not use personal attacks because they think it's politically short-term advantageous to them. Right. The norm? Probably not. Probably not. What does that say, Holly? It's, we're at a win-at-any-cost mentality, I think, on both sides. And it's something where we need, you know, us as leaders, us who are willing to be the sane, let's talk about policy, let's talk about policy differences, let's figure out a better way to get But let's someplace. not name-calling, let's, let's not personally attack, let's not mock people's appearance. Right. We can do that. Absolutely. And we in the media, finally, we in the media have a big role here. I think we all do. I think we as leaders do. I think you guys as being in the media do. I think that we need to stop sensationalizing everything. And it's all, you know, it's not about let's delve into the deep dives anymore. It's, you know, what's going to get us the most number of clicks? What's going to, you know, drive people to our site? And so the most outrageous becomes the norm or the perceived norm because that's what's driving people to engage. You're hopeful. I'm always hopeful. I, I wouldn't because still be doing person. this. <laughs> you know? Were you tempted to get out of this? Oh, absolutely. Uh, this you're tempted to say, I'm out of public life. This entire <laughs> election cycle, I would wake up going, what the heck am I doing? Why am I putting myself through this What's again? What's the answer to it? It's, 
We need people who are willing to put their foot down and go enough. We need people who are willing to set a different path. We need people who are willing to mentor those and build the bench, particularly on the Republican side. You want to show your kids as well? Yes. And I could tell. <laughs> for my 16-year-old, my 8-year-old. <laughs> yeah. What do you want to show them? What's the message? Uh, mommy's strong. Mommy's in it for the right reasons. The sacrifices my family has made in allowing me to do this, that it's for a better purpose and not me just being a gerbil in a wheel um, in politics, but to potentially show a different, better pathway. Holly Spezi, every time you're with us, I, I, I'm not going to make this an endorsement. <laughs> It's meaningful conversation, respectful, candid, important. We thank you. That's why we're in public broadcasting. Thank you. You're welcome anytime. Thank you. I'm Steve Adubato. We'll be right back. Thank you, Holly. Thank you. To watch more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. We're pleased to welcome Assemblywoman Valerie Veneri Huddle, Assembly Deputy Speaker. Good to see you. Thank you, Steve. Always nice to be here. We talk about so many important things, but yeah. I want to get right to an issue that doesn't get talked about. Government-sanctioned safe injection sites for people who have drug issues. Yeah. And what they actually are are overdose prevention centers. You know, as you know, we have an opioid crisis in this country. And in New Jersey, eight people die a day on overdosing. And most of these are young kids. They die in the shadows. They die in the alleyways. This center, or these centers, are medically supervised. And if you think about it, and you remember back in the 90s, during the AIDS crisis, the clean needle exchange was a radical idea, correct? That's right. And it has been working. These overdose prevention centers are working around the country. They're working in Canada. They have, around the country? Well, I should say around the world. Yeah, because Canada. England, um, Sweden. Do we have one in the United States? We do not. Not a single one. Not a single one. They have tried in Philadelphia. They have tried in Boston. They have tried in New York City. What but, has stopped it? But last month, we had some good news. With the judge's a, ruling? Right. Judge's ruling said it did not violate substance control, the Substance Control Act. So therefore, that's a step in the right direction, because I think the naysayers were like, well, they're coming in and they're doing drugs. Well, guess what? They're doing drugs anyway. And if we can prevent one death, if we can prevent an overdose death, then you know what? We're helping. And we have done so many things in New Jersey. I mean, we had the Opioid uh, Prevention Act, which now allows good Samaritans to call and not have any fear. Right. Uh, we have now new warning labels on painkillers and opioid drugs that it can be addicted and it, you can suffer an overdose. We're making changes. We are. But Small this steps. One this is, is not, radical. But this has been around. This idea is not new. You, you are advocating it. Are you getting significant opposition from your colleagues in the state legislature? Well, this is the good news. It's bipartisan. I have Republican sponsors on the assembly side. And of course, we have, I don't know if we have Republican sponsors on the Senate side yet, but let's face it, the opioid crisis touches everyone. It transcends politics. I don't care That's if right. you're a Democrat or Republican. Urban, suburban, rural. We are in a crisis and we are trying to do more. The, the former, uh, Commissioner of Health, Sharif. Sharif Allen Hall was actually in here today. He, Go was, ahead. he was actually, he, he said it's a great idea. The intent is there. We just have to figure out how to do it legally. Where's Governor Murphy on this? I don't know yet. 
but I'm hoping that during the lame duck, at least we can get it on the health committee, we can discuss it, and then we can see where we're going. I, I don't know. I would think I would find it hard to find anyone that if you can save lives and you could prevent overdoses, and if someone is going in to inject, think about it, and they're going in with medically trained staff mm -hmm. and support services, that it could happen just one time. They may be able to be counseled. They may be able to get help. In the interim, if they're shooting now in the alleyways, there's no help for them. There's no service for them. This is supervised, sanctioned injection sites when that are safe. Assemblyman Valley, excuse me, uh, Valerie Veneri, Huddle uh, Deputy Assembly Speaker, let me ask you something. When did you introduce this idea? Last year. So it's been a year or so. But we have been talking about harm reduction centers. We have, there has been discussion, there has been conversation, so all is not lost. You know, due to scheduling, we haven't been back to session for a few months. So I am hoping that when we do go back, it has, you know, it, it's a priority. Well, so well, I'm sorry for interrupting. Yeah, I'm sure, curious of course. about this. I appreciate the fact that you're trying to do this on the state level. We'll see where the Commissioner of Health is on this. We'll bring in uh, Commissioner Percy Kelly. Um, Our new commissioner, acting commissioner. I yes. Believe. We'll interview the governor and ask him about this. Great. Why is this not a national initiative? You know, it is a national issue because I would tell you that the National Health Center has, has created grants the close Senators to a for billion. Disease control? Yes. The CDC? Close to a billion dollars. 956 million, I believe. And that's in research. I mean, we have all sorts of problems with opioid overdoses, and we have, we have children being born addicted. So it's, it's, it's geared for research and where they can be uh, assisted through new medications. You know, we just had uh, last month, I think it was, or two months ago, um, some of the independent pharmacies uh, took part in uh, giving out free Narcan. And in my neighborhood alone in Englewood, they, whatever was given to them, allotted to them, done, completed. I mean, so the Department of Health here in New Jersey, we're taking steps, again, with some of the laws that are being created. Uh, now you can go and get medically-assisted treatment without a doctor's prescription. Think about the people that are on Medicaid. They're not seeing doctors for, you know, mm. um, uh, being addicted. So we have taken steps. But if they're going to inject, let them inject in a safe place. And by the way, just to clarify, what we're talking about is a judge's decision. There was a judge's decision that basically ruled that the proposed site in Philadelphia. Right. Philadelphia is attempting to do this. That's right. That the proposed site in Philadelphia to do just this. Right. Does not violate, violate federal law. Other cities, including Boston, Seattle, San Francisco, New York, have also considered yeah. doing this. And New I'm, Jersey I'm would be with these I'm hoping we're the others. first state. I mean, look, we've, we've done some pretty progressive things in the state. And I'm hoping that we can. And I'm hoping, again, with the help from the National Health Centers, uh, from from almost a billion dollars for research, that the statistics prove. Look at the statistics alone. It's not my idea. Statistics prove not one death. Assemblywoman, I want to thank you for joining us. I thank promise you. you will continue to monitor this issue yes. because it's, it is literally an issue Crisis. of life and death. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this has been State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by Holy Name Medical Center, NJIT, the law firm of Gibbons PC, New Jersey Resources, Fedway Associates.
MD Advantage Insurance Company of New Jersey, the Fidelco Group, and by these public-spirited organizations, individuals, and associations committed to informing New Jersey citizens about the important issues facing the Garden State, and by Employers Association of New Jersey. Promotional support provided by AM970, The Answer, and by Commerce and Industry Association of New Jersey. When it comes to you and your family's health care, transparency is key. At Holy Name Medical Center, we believe in creating an environment where patients can be educated and informed so they can get the most out of their health care. As New Jersey's health care industry continues to evolve and change, Holy Name remains committed to providing patients with high-quality, accessible, and affordable health care.